Have you ever come across something that you is is it's beyond anything you've ever seen or experienced before? It's it's without comparison. It's something that is enormous or 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 blows you away or incredibly beautiful or something to that regard. Uh, many people when they think about that, think about some form uh, of, of nature, right? Or the, the Grand Canyon, or Niagara Falls, or if you've traveled abroad, something even perhaps more majestic than those things. And, and, and in nature, we, sometimes we get these experiences where these, these blow our minds. Well, what I want to suggest to you is if you've had an experience like that, if you've come to something that's, that's majestic and... and, and big and, and, and kind of takes your breath away, you, you have the basis of understanding for what the Bible means when it says that God is holy. Now, oftentimes when we think of the word holy, we think of it in a very particular sense. We think of it in terms of God's moral character. That is that He's without sin, He's holy. And I want to tell you that that's correct, but that's just a small part of what holiness means. Holiness, uh, I tried to come up with a super great definition this week, and here's what I came up with. Holiness is God's beyondness. Right? That is that God is beyond what we can understand. And one of those ways that He is holy is He's beyond our comprehension of moral perfection. He's beyond... uh, good. He's beyond powerful. He's beyond majestic. In some ways, you could even say that the word holy, when it's used of God, just kind of speaks of His godness. (laughs) The sense that He is beyond and other and different than all things and, and, and greater than all things. And one of the central passages in Scripture that reflects upon the holiness of God is Psalm 99. So, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Psalm 99. If you don't, fear not. Uh, The text will be up on the screen for you. This is what the psalmist writes. This again is another one of those psalms of ascent. They would sing these psalms as they went up to the temple to worship at a special feast or or a special day. Uh, The psalmist writes, The Lord reigns. Let Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, the cherubim like, like angels. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just. And right, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. Samuel was among those who called on His name. They called on the Lord and He answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept His statutes and His decrees and he, that He gave them. The Lord our God You answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. 
Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. We're in the midst of this series in the Psalms looking at basic truths about who God is called the Lord is. And they're reflecting together about what that means for us. Today, if you haven't picked up on it already through the songs we've sung or the passage we've read or the introduction I gave, we want to understand that the Lord is holy. Now, if we're going to make sense of this psalm, I think the best way to do it is to divide it in three parts. Uh, You might have picked up on that as I read. At the end of verse 3, there's a statement, He is holy. At the end of verse 5, there's a statement, He is holy. At the end of verse 9, there's another statement, He is holy. Kind of nicely divides it into three parts. The stuff before each of those statements defines His holiness. Helps explain what the psalmist means by saying that He's holy. And will give us, I think, good handles to understand and comprehend what we mean when we say God is holy and what difference that makes for us in this life, uh, even today in 2022. The Lord is holy. So, the first section. The the thing that the psalmist wants to to dive deeply in on is this idea that the Lord reigns. right? The Lord is the true King. He's talking about power and He's talking about might. The Lord is the true King over all things. The psalmist used the word, the Lord reigns, the verb reigns. Uh, And verbs in the Hebrew language are fascinating because they come in all kinds of different forms. Uh, We're not used to that in our English language. But the the form that the psalmist chooses in this first verse is a a form of finality. It's a a form of comprehensiveness. It's almost as if someone uh, zooms out and sees the beginning all the way to the end and makes a declarative statement about it. And his declarative statement is, oh, by the way, the Lord reigns. I've seen the beginning. I've seen it play all the way out. I've seen the end. The Lord reigns. That is incredibly stabilizing news when you are living in the middle of that storyline which we currently are, and all peoples have been. The psalmist says, what does it mean that the Lord is holy? It means that He reigns. That He is the true King. Now we have trouble, especially in this country, understanding the concept of kingship, don't we? Or queenship or monarchy in any kind of way. It's foreign to us. We know that part of why we became a country was we didn't like the king. Right? And so... That kind of forms our whole understanding. And so our basic understanding of kingship and queenship is maybe Queen Elizabeth uh, in the UK. Uh, And then like all the pomp and circumstance that goes along with it. But if we're honest, we're not really sure what Queen Elizabeth does, right? And Queen Elizabeth, I'm not demeaning her in any way, seems like a, 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 a good leader in all of these things, but there's a prime minister, there's a parliament, there's all these other things, right? And so what happens in the UK, this is what's called a constitutional monarchy, right? She has certain powers that are given to her. There are, are limits on what she can do. She has roles that she uh, has to function within, but there are checks and there are balances to that. And so we hear words like king or queen, and we think, oh, that's nice, ceremony, 
pomp. Whenever someone gets married, it's a big deal, right? <laughs> uh, and then if like, someone doesn't like live up to the royal expectations and they move to California and get interviews with Oprah, like we're really interested in that stuff. For, for why? We're not sure. But, but that's not at all the concept of kingship when the Bible talks about God as king. We're talking in a very Old Testament or even the New Testament day age of kingship as absolute authority, right? No checks and balances, no questions asked. Whatever the king or the queen said is what happened, whether you liked it or not. The psalmist wants to say, that's the truth about God. He's the actual king, and he's not a constitutional monarch, He rules, as kings have often claimed, though only one can claim, he rules by divine right, with full authority, unchecked by human agencies. And look at the picture that the psalmist gives. He says he rules between the cherubs. The the word between is kind of inserted to make sense. It just says he rules with the cherubs, right? Or the cherubim. Uh, Cherubim is is a Hebrew way of pluralizing the concept there. This is high and lofty picture of God's rule, right? So kings and queens, they love, especially in that day, to to show their power by their pomp and their circumstance, their thrones and all the things that would come to them. And the psalmist is like, yeah, you've got nice thrones and stuff, but he's like enthroned amongst the angels. (laughs) like Higher and bigger than anyone can comprehend. And then the psalmist says, and he's great. This idea that every single part of who God is is great. And great, uh, it means large or big or huge. There's a vastness to every truth about who God is. He's painting a picture of the power and the might and the rule of God. And as he does this, he's doing something else quite fascinating. And maybe you caught this right from the beginning. He's like, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. (laughs) Right? The Lord is powerful, let the earth shake. There's this sense in which uh, on earth, we like to think that we have all kinds of power. We like to think that we have all kinds of authority and all kinds of rule. And often, uh, those who find themselves in power use their authority to advance their own agenda not the agenda of the true king, that is God. And so the psalmist is trying to give a, uh, a notice, right? He's putting all the, the, the current and would-be rulers of the day on notice. That there actually is a higher authority above them. And that he wields authority that is unchecked and above them. In essence that they aren't the final say of their particular kingdom in that day. Whether you be the king or the queen of Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or eventually Rome or any of those things, oh yeah, there might be might and power and you might lead in a certain way, but you need to know that there's someone beyond you. Or let's fast forward it into modern days. Whether you lead a nation state or you run a business or you lead a family, or you provide leadership over your own individual life. The psalmist is saying, all of that in essence is delegated authority. There's one who is above that, who actually has 
the true authority over those things. And it ought to make us tremble and aware and cognizant. This is not a psalm just about fear, right? Because what is the response that the psalmist gives us in the first three verses? He says, praise His great and awesome name. Now, in the old translations, like the King James Version, it would say, praise His great and awful name, right? But modern English has kind of corrupted the word awful. We, now awful is like a really bad thing. But awful just means full of awe, right? <laughs> Actually, like, so now we have awesome, which kind of the 80s corrupted that word too, right? <laughs> but you get it. There's this idea that, that like overwhelmed by the vastness and the power and the beauty and the glory of who God is. There's this sense of, of, of your heart actually being full of the presence of God. That you were led to, to praise Him. And listen to what he says. Praise His great and awesome name. There's this sense in which just the name of God brings with it such inescapable awe if we really come into its presence. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this because one of the great stories of the Old Testament is a story of a man who asked God what his name was. Do you remember this? And the experience radically changed this man's life and, as we expect, appearance, right? He was a totally different after finding out the name of God. This is Moses, of course, asking God for his name. Uh, and God says, my name is I Am. Do you remember this? And I am uh, is, is changed just slightly to, to get the, the, the holy name of God, Yahweh, right? It, it just adds the, the prefix that makes it a third person instead of a first person thing. God says, I am, but we can't call him I am, because that sounds like I am. So Yahweh says, He is. Does this make sense? He is. Now, what a strange name to choose for yourself, right? You ever think about that? What name would you choose for yourself? My parents tell a story. I don't remember it at all. We went to Disney World when I was a little kid, and for some reason, I had uh, the desire for my name to be changed from Adam to Nick, right? I don't know why. I don't know what was so popular about Nick in the day, but apparently I threw massive tantrums. Now, there's empirical proof of this because they remember the old Super 8 videos? There's videos of me like freaking out on the bench with Mickey Mouse ears on it. My dad's like, yeah, you, you're mad because they wouldn't call you Nick. Right? <laughs> so I have no, no basis to question names. But God's like, Moses like, what's your name? And God's like, I am. But, but the idea here is like there's this essence in which God can't be defined. There's this essence in which God is pre-existent. He's all-powerful. He's above these things. I am. So much so that the very name of God brings with it incredible amounts of awe if we would just reckon with the truth of who we are, what we are saying about God when we speak His actual name. The Jewish people, many to this day, won't speak the name Yahweh because it's too holy to even be spoken. Right? And that's based on the uh, on the, the, the Ten Commandments, the rule, do not take the Lord's name in vain. They're trying very hard not to do that. And so they would, uh, they would take a different word that meant Lord 
And that word is the Hebrew word Adonai. Maybe you've heard that before. And so every time in your Bible where you have that weird sense, and we've got it here too, Lord, capital L, and then smaller capitals, O-R-D, that's the holy name. That's Yahweh. But when they read that, they wouldn't say it. They'd say Adonai. Because it was too holy to even be pronounced. The psalm was saying the name of God, even just His name, if you reckon with it, should bring awe and worship to you. And listen to what he says at the end of verse 2. So exalt Him above the nations. Now we have to translate that into modern language because again, we don't live amongst kingdoms, right? Israel's great fear were kingdoms oppressing them uh, or coming and conquering them or wars that were going on. We don't really live in that way in this day, in, in this particular country. Uh, but we also don't have the concept of monarchs, right? Who would be trying to advance their agenda in that way. And so can I suggest to you a, a modern application of this for us? The psalmist is saying, hey, when you come into, uh, into the presence or to the experience or, or, or the reality of the holiness of God, the very first question that you should ask is, okay, what kings or queens do I need to depose in my life? And if you're being honest, the first one that needs to be deposed is yourself, right? Because maybe you're different than me, but I'm running my whole life. And oftentimes, when it comes to it, I'm actually doing it not fully in alignment with God's ways. Right? And so, who, who, who needs to be deposed? Who are you worshiping? Who are you following that is, is moving you in opposition to who God is? The psalmist says, no, 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 exalt God above them. The word exalt actually means to lift high, rank Him higher, right? That, that, that we are following God in that He is our true King. Second section that ends with He is holy. Starts by the psalmist saying, this mighty God loves justice. This mighty God loves justice. Justice. To think about the holiness of God, uh, it's impossible to, to fully consider the holiness of God apart from the justice of God. Now, it is near impossible, I would say <clears throat> it's actually impossible, to think about an all-powerful monarch or God <coughs> excuse me, who actually rules with perfect justice. Why? Because we've never seen it before. <laughs> we've experienced lots of people leading, right? We've elected politicians who have said one thing and done quite another. Uh, we've been part of businesses or bosses who have <clears throat> led in a particular way. Thank you. We've seen it on the world stage in all kinds of different ways and platforms. That those who gain power typically move away from justice. There's that old phrase, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so it is our experience. And it seems like today, our world talks an awful lot, <coughs> especially in our country, talks an awful lot about issues of justice and issues of equity. Uh, and I want to say to you, that's important, and it's good, and it's right. 
And as followers of Jesus, we should be involved in those discussions. We should actually be leading the way in being people of justice and and equity. That's what it means to live in this kingdom. And so I say when these conversations and, and things come up, this is good, this is right. There's something inherent in us that is calling out for God. The problem is most of those discussions end up with new human ideas that empower different people to lead inequitably in another way. Does that make sense? And we've all seen and experienced that. And that is not to say that we shouldn't be involved politically or shouldn't be involved locally in pushing forward issues of justice because we should. I'm not saying, well, we should just sit back and and God do the thing. But it's an issue of hope, right? Because what does the psalmist say? So we ought to worship. (laughs) Because in a worship, we actually become more like God. And then we become people who are just and who pursue equity. Listen to what he says here. He says, this God, this mighty God, He has established equity. Again, that word established is the same word as reigned before. Now, different words, but the same uh, aspect or verbal form. The idea of certainty, of zooming out, it's there, it's established, it's been there from the beginning. It's part of what it means to be in God's creation. It might not always feel like that because of the brokenness of this world. In Psalm uh, 8, verse 3, this is what the psalmist writes. He says, When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon of the stars, which you have set in place. That word set in place, same exact word as we find in Psalm 99 about establishing equity. There's this sense in which from the creation of all things, the equity of God is infused in creation. That's why we long for it, but we look for it in the wrong ways or places because of the brokenness of this world. The psalmist says, listen, we can see it and we can taste it even in this world, but we see it by how God deals with His people. Right? He says, you have dealt justly and equitably with Jacob. Right? Now, he's not just talking about Jacob proper. Jacob, uh, remember God changes Jacob's name to Israel and Israel becomes the people of God. The psalmist is referring to collectively God's people, how God has dealt with them. We can see the established equity of God even in the midst midst of a broken and troubled world. So how are we supposed to respond to this? What does the psalmist say? How do we respond to the justice and the equity of God? The psalmist says, we exalt and we worship Him. Now, this is a fascinating juxtaposition because the word exalt means to lift up and the word worship means to bow down. Do you see this? See what the psalmist is calling us to do? More of God, less of me. It's almost like John the Baptist talking about Jesus, isn't it? He must become greater. I must become less. Exalt Him and worship Him. And where are we supposed to do this, the psalmist say? At the footstool of God. Now things are beginning to come into full picture. Do you see it? You might not. You're like, footstool? How does that bring anything into full picture here? 
the idea that the psalmist has in mind throughout this entire psalm is a very important piece of Israel's history. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The footstool of God was the Ark of the Covenant. You can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 28 when David refers to the Ark as God's footstool, as well as other places. Not to mention before when the psalmist had talked about God's mighty rule between two cherubim. If you read Exodus 25, you'll find out that the mercy seat that sits on top of the Ark, on either side of it were two cherubim. And so the psalmist has this beautiful picture of the Ark of the Covenant being the anchor in the midst of a crazy, messed up world that reminds us of God's holiness, His power, and His justice, even when we don't feel it, is certain because of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this Ark of the Covenant isn't just an interesting thing that they made that has these things on it. Inside of it is what? The books of the covenant, right? The commandments, the covenant that God has made with the people. It's representative of God's coming to dwell with them. You remember when Israel comes out of slavery in Egypt, they meet God at Mount Sinai. God is far and distant. He's holy, right? Moses is encountering Him and doing these things and mediating between the people. And God gives Moses the covenant and Moses brings it down off the mountain for the people. But eventually, it's God who descends the mountain to lead the people. So the Ark of the Covenant isn't just something Indiana Jones was looking for one day back then. It's an important symbolism of God's presence with His people that can't be taken away. That's why the pictures in Ezekiel of God leaving the temple are so utterly heartbreaking for the future of the people of God. Because at that moment, they are hopeless. Do you see this? But the psalmist is saying, as long as that ark is in that temple, even if it's been a rough week or a rough year or years and years and years of injustice, you can be certain that God reigns. That He is who He says He is. And oh, by the way, that His justice and vengeance will arrive. So then, let's ask the question that might be on your mind. It's been on my mind. How do we live? (laughs) How do we live in a broken world that is, let's be honest, unjust and inequitable at nearly every turn? Far more unjust and inequitable for some than others. But all of us have experienced it in so many ways. How are we supposed to live and function in a world like this? What the psalmist is inviting us to do, the same as he is inviting his uh, brothers and sisters in the days he wrote the psalm, is that you would come near to the God who has come near to you. You see this? The Ark of the Covenant symbolizes that God has come near to you. And now He's inviting you to come near to Him, even to His footstool. Right there. Now isn't it fascinating that the psalmist, in the midst of all of these things, it says God is for justice and God is for equity. He doesn't say, so whenever you see a 
or whenever you are, are things that are unjust happen to you or inequitable happen to you, you respond and make them right because after all, that's what God's people do. It's not what He tells us to do, is it? He says, no, you exalt and bow down. In other words, you lift God up and you submit yourself to Him. Even in the midst of injustice and inequity to you. Listen to me. I'm not telling you that the church should abstain from speaking about and acting on issues of injustice in our world. That would be wrong. I'm talking about us personally as we engage them. What is our response? How do we move that? And the psalmist says, your response has to be to come near to the God who has come near to you. Your response to injustice towards you actually ought to be worship of God. Why? Because He's going to be just with you. He is going to be equitable with you. And at the end of the day, the one who's exerting power over you and using it in unjust and inequitable ways is going to have to come to account to the one who has authority over them. God's justice and His equity exist and will be fully employed. We're to be people of worship. But something happens to us when we truly worship a holy God. God says this all the time. Because it's not just God who's called holy. In the Bible, we're also called holy. It's really weird, isn't it? Because all the things, all the way I just defined holy, when you think about God, that makes sense. And when you think about you, it doesn't really make sense, does it? Like, mm, yeah. I'm not exactly Niagara Falls. I might be the Monocacy Creek, you know, or, or whatever. But God says, no, no, no. You're not holy because of what you've done or because of the power you possess. You're holy because you're mine. <laughs> and you're set apart, and therefore, you live out my values in this broken, messed up world because you believe my kingdom actually supersedes the kingdoms of this world. Is God asking for some significant faith there? You better believe it. Is He worthy of it? Yes. Now, I don't say any of this lightly because I know your stories. I've heard the things that you've had to wrestle through and I know things that my family and I have had to wrestle through. Some of you have faced really hard injustices in your life. Massive acts of inequity. And I don't mean in any way to belittle any of them. They are significant. Nor do I mean to give you a silly, trite, pastoral sermon that says, let go and let God. Right? But I do mean to help you lift your eyes. To believe that there is someone with absolute authority who actually does rule with justice and with equity and is worthy to be worshipped and to be followed and is going to right all of the wrongs that have been done to you. This is why Paul says, that it is not our responsibility to avenge those who have wronged us. He says instead, we ought to live as just and equitable people. Romans chapter 12 is what he writes. Bless those who persecute you. 
we usually chuckle when we read verses like this, right? Like, oh yeah, Jesus said that. He knows we could never do that, right? Bless and do not curse. Do you remember who Paul is writing to in Romans? The church at Rome. Do you remember who the emperor of Rome was when he wrote this? Nero. Ever heard about Nero before? He was a really bad dude. And he was really unjust and inequitable, specifically to Christians. So much so that he decided he wanted to have lighting in his garden. And here's how he did it. He burnt Christians at the stake in his garden to light it up. And we say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Paul. We're not for that. <laughs> We're against that. Yeah. How do we respond to that? Should we have a more just and equitable society? Of course we should. And we should pull forward to it. But that doesn't mean that we're moved outside the kingdom of God that calls us to be just and equitable people ourselves. Paul says, so you bless those who persecute you. Why? Because we're called to advance the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. He goes on. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be inequitable or unjust. Do you see this? Listen, I need to pause and say this. I wrestled with whether I should say it or not. I'm going to say it. Right? Whenever issues of injustice or equity rise up in the world, there should be no better spokespeople than... Christians. Unfortunately, we've lost the right to speak because we've been awful at it and incredibly hypocritical about it. We don't live like this. We live like the kingdoms of this world. Oh, you wronged me? I'll wrong you. Oh, you're yelling at me about this thing? I'm going to yell louder than you, right? You want to lob that bomb? Look at the bomb I've got here to to lob at you. We've lost the right to speak to the very issues we should be the ones to speak to because we actually have the answers. You want a more just and equitable world? We know the answer to that. But no one's listening to us because we've lived a very different way. You see this? Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. You know how hard and difficult this is? Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. I.e., it's not just about what you think might be the right answer to this moment. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with your friends. No, with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you hear this? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are called to worship God in the midst of injustice and inequity to us. Why? Because it transforms us. Why? Because God is worthy of it. It's who we are as creation. 
but it also transforms us to be agents of His kingdom. Everyone who has an interaction with the holiness of God is sent. Do you notice this in the Bible? Right? Moses has an interaction. He's sent to Egypt. Isaiah has an interaction and God's like, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah's like, I guess I'll do it. That we are changed and we're sent to be agents, to be messengers, to be proclaimers, to be ambassadors of God's kingdom in how we live and in what we say. In what we do and in how we carry ourselves. That we would be people who advance justice and equity simply by our existence, let alone our community engagement. God is holy. That means He's just and equitable. I love what it says, and, and, and Paul is quoting uh, the Old Testament and saying, you know, the old King James, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. Right? Uh, and here's our problem with God a lot of the time is that we love God and we really do think He's for us. We're just not so sure He's got the timing thing down right. Right? <laughs> like, okay, vengeance, God. How about now? <laughs> Here's the thing that really, we really struggle with. We've talked about this a lot, especially the book of Numbers. If we're honest with us, the thing we really struggle with about God's character, even though it's holy and perfect, we struggle with it because it doesn't work on our agenda, is we really struggle with the patience of God. We don't like that He's a patient God. Don't get me wrong. We love that He's patient with us. (laughs) We don't love that He's patient with the world. Why is vengeance not coming? Why is correction for injustice not coming in that moment? Because God is patient, desperate that everyone would repent and respond and be rescued and saved. This is who God is. It's part of His holiness. And so then to the final part. The psalmist reminds us that we can be certain of God's holy and just rule even in the circumstances of our day. He would say because we've seen it. right? Listen to the example he gives. Because we saw it. We've seen your holiness with Moses and Aaron and Samuel. right? He says, they called out to you and you answered them and you led your people. Now why pick those three? Isn't that interesting? Why Moses, Aaron? Like Moses and Aaron we get because they were kind of connected in the same story but then Samuel. What's he there for? Why not Noah or Abraham or Isaiah or Elijah or someone else, right? He's picking those three people on purpose because all three of those people have called on the covenant faithfulness of God to rescue His people. Right? Do you remember when Moses is up getting the law getting the very covenant from God. What is Israel struggling with? The timing of God, right? Like, well, it's taking a long time up there. Maybe we should do something about this. And they create, do you remember they create their own God, an image of God. They create a golden calf. God gets a glimpse of this because nothing happens outside of His view. And He's furious. He's done. He's like, forget it. I'm not coming off the mountain for these people. I'm not doing this. And Moses pleads with him. Do you remember? 
He pleads with him on the basis of his covenant that he's made with his people. And God relents because of his covenant and agrees to lead the people. And it happens often in the ministry of Moses. We say, well, what about Aaron? Do you remember Aaron's function? Aaron was the high priest. He was the one who once a year actually entered into the very presence of the Ark of the Covenant and laid an offering on that very footstool, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. For who? For the whole totality of the people on the basis of the covenant that they would be forgiven by God. And God answered. Okay, but what about Samuel? Do you remember Samuel? Samuel is the last of the priests, right? The last of the prophetic leaders, in essence. Uh, because Israel is clamoring for a king. Do you remember this? Uh, and Samuel's like, oh, they have rejected me. And God's like, no, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. But Samuel <laughs> speaks on behalf of the people to God. And God sticks with his people even after another massive rejection. Do you remember what the psalmist has said earlier? How do we see the justice and the equity of God? By how he's dealt with Jacob, with his people. And in these three people, and there are many others, as leaders of the people of God, we see God's holy encounter of covenant faithfulness to his people. But it's not just through the leadership. Uh, the, the psalmist says, and this is a challenging little section for us, that's why I left it right at the end so I can just breeze through it, and you can think about all the hard questions and email them to me later on. He says, we see your holiness in your forgiveness and the times you punished us, <laughs> right? And we're like, oh, forgiveness, we love that. Well, wait a minute, the times you punished us, what's that all about? Well, if you look at the story of Israel, God's holiness is equally seen in His grand forgiveness. In the same way it is seen in His avengeance of Himself. The word punish is, a, is poorly translated. It actually means avenge. Right? It's actually the word avenge. But God is avenging Himself uh, in those places. We don't like that. That's hard for us. But the holiness of God demands vengeance. In his forgiveness and his vengeance, we've seen it. So how do we respond? It's the same phrase as in the second section. We respond by exalting and worshiping. Lifting him up and bowing down. But you see now, he moves from just the footstool. He says, now come to the holy mountain. right? And of course, he's referencing Zion, uh, the mountain on which the temple is built, where the ark is. But that mountain is symbolic of the mountain where God first dwelled, of Sinai, right? Because the mountain of Sinai is where the covenant was given, and the mount of Zion is where the covenant now sits in the ark. And the psalmist is saying, now, so you bow down before this God. What's he actually calling him to do? Not just a, prost, uh, a, a prostrate uh, rite of, uh, of worship where you lay down in front of someone, though that's in essence what he's asking. But he's calling them to obedience, Right? You remember what he said about Moses and Aaron and Samuel? They kept your statutes and your decrees. And so what's the response to the holiness of God? That we would keep His statutes and His decrees. We've talked about this last week. 
that you can't have true worship without actual obedience. They are hand in hand. And so God is saying, uh, the psalmist is saying, at the end of the day, how do you respond to the holiness of God? By living God's way. By keeping His covenant. But once again, just like Psalm 95 last week, the psalmist does something quite fascinating, and perhaps you picked up on it. Everything up until the end is about God. Almost as if He's distant and powerful. And at the very end, the psalmist says, the Lord, our God, is holy. But this isn't just a high and powerful God who could be angry with you, so you better just do everything right. Otherwise, you could get struck down by lightning. That this is a God who's actually for you and is blazing a path for you. The pillar of clouds, right, is the God present leading us and leading the people through the wilderness. That this God is for you. And the Israelites knew this. They knew this because of the covenant and all the stories that it had told. They knew this because of the Red Sea and the great exodus. They knew this because of God's provision through the wilderness. They knew this because of the stories of Joshua in the conquering of the land that was inhabited with what they called giants. They knew this because of the grand uh, time of the kingdom under David and his leadership. Knew that God was for them. But maybe you're asking this question. Okay, they knew it. But how do I know it? Because last time I checked, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Right? Indiana Jones couldn't find it. We've all given up. Right? But it's true. We don't know where it is. And last time I checked, there's no temple on Zion anymore. It was destroyed a long, long time ago. And you're right. And last time I checked, that covenant was made with the Israelites, and that's not part of my history. And you're right. So what does Psalm 99 mean for people like us? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that the Lord is your God because of Jesus. That God has made a new covenant with a new people through Jesus. That the holiness of God that is displayed in His forgiveness and in His vengeance met on what we celebrate as Good Friday. The cross of Calvary. Once and for all, forgiveness lavished while vengeance came down on sin and death accomplished in that moment. And then the glory of the three days later at Easter that we celebrate is the resurrected Jesus. You know why you don't need an Ark of the Covenant? Because you have an empty tomb. That's why we celebrate at the end of every single service. Because if we don't have the resurrection, none of this makes sense. And you should just forget it. But if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. You know who understood this maybe the best? is the Apostle John. Listen to his rendition of the resurrection. 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Remember, this is Mary Magdalene. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and one at the foot. Now this is so weird. Why would this even be recorded? Okay, fine, there are two angels in there, but why are they sitting one at the head and one at the foot? Because what is the Jewish imagery of an angel at the head and the foot? See what John is saying? This is the Ark of the Covenant, friends. The resurrected Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant. It's in Jesus that the covenant finds its full fulfillment. And God no longer dwells in a box on a temple halfway around the world. His Spirit is sent to you. You are the temple of the living God. How do you know that God is for you? The resurrection demands that God is for you. Forgiveness and vengeance all poured out in one day so that the presence of God could be unleashed from an ark into His very people. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. So if you've had an experience with Jesus, if you've believed the Gospel, then you have encountered the utter holiness of God. And therefore, you have been commissioned. And you are sent to live as kingdom people in this broken, messed up, crazy, chaotic, unjust, inequitable world that is going to scar you, that is going to leave marks. This this world leaves marks on us. God knows this, but He's given you a calling. He's entrusted you. He believes in you. He's with you. He's for you. Is it hard? Yes! How do you move forward? The resurrection, right? Because the holy, mighty rule of God is coming in its fullness, even if it is here now already in part. You can be certain of it. So you press forward, even when the ones in power around you are unjust and inequitable. And you're saying, "Hmm, vengeance is the Lord. Instead, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to live the justice and the equity of the kingdom. Why? Because as God's people, He says you too are holy. Can I pray with you?